My name is Tony Wynn, and this is the Remotely Software Podcast, where I interview remote software developers to discover how they and their team work effectively from different locations. This week, I talked with Roland Lee, a remote data engineer working out of Washington, D.C. We discussed how he got into development, work life as a data engineer, the D.C. tech scene, and how RPGs relate to remote work. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Roland, I would like to know what is on your desk. Start from left to right. I have two eyeglass cloths. I'll wipe off my glasses and clean them, and I'll put one cloth somewhere, and I'll not be able to find it. I bought a duplicate. <laughs> then I always didn't find the other ones, and like now I have both stacked in case I ever was it. <laughs> the military has this theory that one is none and two is one, so you always have that backup. I like that your eyeglasses, no matter what, should be able to be clean. Yes. Super important. Super important. Um, the corresponding eyeglass cleaner that goes with it, just one of those? Just, just one. It's, it's a industri- not industrial size. It's probably about, let me read it here. It's eight ounces. So <laughs> it's, it's a hefty eyeglass cleaner. It's a glass of water on a coaster. Glass highball, just to be specific. A Thunderbolt monitor, company issued. My Happy Hacker Professional 2 with my blacked out keys. My Yeti microphone with the mic screen. It's a Knox Audio. My Logitech wireless mouse, a Griffin laptop stand, my MacBook Pro, my phone, and a fidget spinner I got from a conference. <laughs> nice. Does the fidget spinner always stay on the desk? Is it a part of the lineup or has it just ended up there? It's part of the family now. <laughs> it kind of went through like a probation period. I used to have a Rubik's Cube. Then I realized that... I'd actually get too invested into the Rubik's Cube and like it, it, it stopped becoming a fidget thing and put it became like a distraction. It got replaced with a fidget spinner. Nice. You'd work up to some kind of crazy like mental skills if you can get so involved in the fidget spinner that you're you're outside of work. That's like Zen master level where you're just sitting there staring at it. So you'll have to work up to it. it it's a journey. <laughs> Super interested in the hacky. What did you call it? The happy hacking keyboard is that mm-hmm. the name of it yeah the happy hacker um, keyboard happy hacker keyboard so that's a clicky keyboard right yes um i will clicky i don't know if it, the mic picks it up and keyboard nice um was that much of a transition going from a normal keyboard with labels on the keys to that or how is that for you Yes and no. I would say 80% of the time it's great. After having this for about two years, I still don't remember which symbol maps to which number. And I just have to go to use my Mac laptop <laughs> keyboard to like see, okay, two is at, three is pound, four is dollar sign. Are you just looking at the other keyboard and then typing on the happy hacker? Uh, what the symbol is, or do you actually move your hands over up onto the elevator stand? I move my hands if I'm in a rush. Mm-hmm. This is one of those things I never commit to muscle memory, and I'm ashamed. The the real hubris is getting the blacked out keys, thinking that <laughs> it, it was a purchase I made early in my career, thinking mm-hmm. that like I need these symbols to prove that I'm a real programmer. <laughs> Clicky keyboard with blacked out keys kind of was the top of the things that what a real programmer would have had. I'm in the very same situation. There's a number of keyboard shortcuts that I don't know what I've mapped option to anywhere. So my window resizing program, I've got to hold down command option control and an arrow key. There's no way I know where all of those keys are at once. So every single time I resize windows, I reach up to the laptop in order to do it. I feel like there should be like some kind of electrical shock kind of thing to keep me out of that habit on the old keyboard. Old habits uh, die hard. For sure. Can you tell me a little bit about what your typical day looks like? So it fluctuates a little bit. I would say a standard day is I wake up at 7.30. I make coffee, grind beans, do a pour over. Hand grind or you've got a fancy electric one? Fancy electric one. I'm not that artisanal yet. (laughs) Make coffee. I check Habatica, which is kind of my my productivity tool. And there I have like a Habatica. I, Um, I don't know anything about this. Can you tell me about it? 
Yeah, so Habatica is essentially a gamification of productivity. So it's built off sort of like you think of like an old school RPG that mm-hmm. you have a little character, mine's a warrior, for completing tasks, I get loot and experiences. And I can set it up as habits, just small things I do out the day that I get small rewards for. So that's brushing my teeth, drinking a glass of water. The another thing is dailies, which is very specific tasks I do on a daily basis. So for me, it's check Hacker News, uh, read my Feedly account, check certain subreddits that I enjoy, and like work on a side project or read a chapter in a book. Interesting. Then I have a to-dos that are like specific things. So one is call an electrician, or I want to bake this recipe on Saturday because it's time intensive. I can mm-hmm. set it there. Then like I get experience. And my character levels up and I get loot and it's, you know, if I don't complete the tasks on either the due date or miss a daily, my character loses health. So there's a little avatar that if I don't do all the things I promised myself I do, may die. It's a great motivator. (laughs) Does your character ever like battle other users' characters or you're just like kind of watching yourself get stronger and more weaponized or something? So yeah, so there's no PvP, but there is, um, you can be part of parties, and there are quests where you can fight monsters, which makes it more punitive if you miss, and if you miss, it also deals damage to the other people in your party. So then there's, it becomes an accountability feedback loop of, if I don't do this task, the other people in my party will get dealt damage hurt their characters. There is an astronomical jump in how likely someone's to complete something on that website if they're part mm-hmm. of a party doing a quest opposed to if they're just doing it by themselves. That's super interesting. I've tried in the past this app called Epic Win. Have you heard of it? It's a little bit similar. I have not, but I, I think there's a few apps out there that do the same thing. Yeah, it was a while ago, and I can't actually tell that it's still around, but it didn't have any of that group kind of dynamic. And so it, like most to-do systems, it kept my interest for about a week, and I was really excited about what a productive person I had become. And then uh, my real self came back around and reminded me that that's not who I am. So that's super cool that that has the accountability piece kind of built into it. That's awesome. Yeah, I've been using it for almost a year now. So I think I started in December. It's becoming stickier as it goes on. And I'm in a party with my wife. So it's (laughs) that feedback loop uh, becomes very tight and making sure things get done. (laughs) Nice. Okay, so you wake up, you make coffee, you check through your tasks. What else? So from there, it's Probably eight, 8.30. I usually eat hard-boiled, like I hard-boiled eggs in the morning. Getting the right nutrition down for me to make sure I have the right energy levels going into the day. I've kind of tuned it to three hard-boiled eggs. After that, brush my teeth, shower, kind of get ready for the day, and then start work at 9. I usually get a good hour uninterrupted from... 9 to 10. Most of my team is based out of Dallas. And you're East Coast, so that's like a two-hour gap, right? I'm in D.C. on the East Coast, and they're in Central and Dallas. So that's only about an hour difference. I can get a solid hour in. Um, then about 10 to 11 is everyone checking in uh, on Microsoft Teams of how's everyone doing, anything interesting going on, getting that water cooler talk. If anyone has like kind of daily announcements of, I have a doctor's appointment, so I'll be away from keyboard from 11 to noon. Things of that nature. We may have to travel as a team here in a couple of weeks. The more I know, I'll keep you posted. Things okay. like that. Does someone initiate that conversation kind of every day? Or it just has kind of naturally happened that as people in Central Time are starting to get on, you start seeing those messages and you start posting yourself? I would say it's kind of just natural, given the needs so everyone's usually finding something interesting like a new interesting article or someone has to just has a life thing they have to tend to anytime i have something i usually hold off and post it around 10 just so i'm not blowing up anyone's phone at eight o'clock their time right how many people are on the team with you three other people okay so really pretty small group That's Mm -hmm. awesome. In the morning, you get some updates with team members on what they're up to. Any other kind of formalized process kind of stuff? Are you 
starting to work tickets after that or yeah from there it's usually checking with our uh, with our stakeholders be it on the product side the devops reviewing our board working through our current processes the interesting thing in my role uh, in data engineering is that we live in between teams. We're not fully dedicated to a certain project. There is a lot of flexibility Mm -hmm. in the sense of, okay, I'm going to work on project A or I'm going to work on project B. I have these different tickets that are coming down and so I'm just working through them. So there isn't that as much ceremony compared to when I was a full stack developer. Cool. Do you end up going to any standups at all or is it uh, more freeform and and flexible than that? More freeform. Um, The meetings that I'm normally in are purpose driven and kind of figuring out like, okay, this data issue, we need to get this solved or we are creating these new environments and we need to kind of get our data synchronized to a certain level in between them or like having a discussion of what should QA look like compared to prod compared to dev or ad hoc projects that person may need that's data modeling with the current data we have what could it look like given our current data sets for their needs it feels like you're really granted you're on a very small team but you have very small amount of process as well which is great but I, I happen to know you work within a very large organization is that sometimes a struggle to fight against bigger process type things or because you're small and a little bit in between larger teams, it's easier for y'all to maintain more flexibility and maybe more autonomy of process. The way our current agile methodology is structured is that data isn't a thing that happens every day. New columns, um, new data models are not something that get pushed to prod very often or is on a lot of people's roadmaps. Making sure like the lights are on or that the data coming from third-party sources are, are clean, like that's something that we have a lot of autonomy over given like this the special nature that people understand that there's no need for a lot of the process overhead because of its nebulous scope. The nature of the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You were saying you were full stack development and you made the transition into this data engineering role. What were the things that you found attractive about making that move? There is a lot of opportunity in data engineering, especially going going forward. I think everyone talks about AI, machine learning, things of that nature. And all of these PhDs at Google, Facebook, Wall Street, and kind of like the, the front lines of All of that is data engineering. Mm -hmm. Kind of the secret within data science, machine learning is that getting a good, clean data set to work off of is probably the hardest part. And that's like where a lot of people, and I feel like me kind of being where I'm at in my career, I'm not old, but I'm probably past my window of should I get a PhD in computer science? I I could maybe possibly make that play, but. From a mm-hmm. personality standpoint and my other life goals, I don't I didn't think that was realistic. And I think data engineering is a place where I can add a lot of value and kind of understanding and being part of that environment. And there's some things I can do as a, a lay person, not knowing linear algebra or having a mild understanding of linear regression. Mm-hmm. I can contribute, but I think having a strong coding background, or like thinking about code style, testing, and bringing those values from full stack into data engineering sets me apart from the rest. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your background? So you're obviously doing data engineering stuff. You were doing full stack uh, web development before that. Where have you come from? Yep. So uh, I've had a pretty interesting journey. I actually studied business in college. So I, I do find it a little sore uh, when I like when people create the fi- the false dichotomy between like you know the business people I was like a long time ago I I used to be a business person um, <laughs> I may use the word ask as a noun uh, I'm not ashamed of it so yeah from there I graduated and I had the opportunity to work at a, a startup living social um, and joining their digital marketing team. So a lot of that included Facebook ads. So I know that's kind of a hot button topic these days of understanding Facebook targeting, understanding Google targeting, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, and that really helps me gain my foundation of how the web works because mm-hmm. I have to understand pixels, I understand cookie targeting, what makes up a URL, things like that, Google Analytics, and that, that kind of started giving me a taste of what's really underneath the internet opposed to what a normal consumer sees. Then right. from there, uh, I was able to transition to a email marketing role. You have your favorite retailer and you get a promo code that says summer 10 get 10 percent off everything in the store or these certain items or like the bed mm-hmm. bath and beyond coupons right i was doing that for living social from there i was working with our data science team understanding like what are the effects of different incentives i got a lot of visibility into that and that really piqued my interest interesting um, I also had to write my own reports because fast-growing startup, not a lot of, you know, other developers' times are very valuable. Um, mm-hmm. You seem smart. Here's <laughs> access to our Hive database. Go write your own queries. And I was like, well, okay, this is faster than, like, putting in a ticket, waiting two days to get back a, C- a CSV. Had you had any kind of programming experience before this? Had you played around with... JavaScript back in college or high school or ever like dipped your toes into this or just all of a sudden someone says you need to write a report where you query for the data that you need (laughs) like here's Google go at it what was that like for you I would say that um, the only coding experience I had was probably MySpace in middle school Uh, so I kind of I understand HTML and CSS at the time Mm-hmm. There may have been a college course that I slept through that covered pieces of it, um, and I just kind of zoned out. But I think that was the first time that I did that. I picked up the O'Reilly's Learning Sequel nice. and went at it. And I was like, okay, well, select star from. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they had some restrictions where you couldn't actually blow away the database or anything. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was always the fear, is that I think my first month, I kept copying and pasting queries to the developer. It's like, is this okay? Is this okay? Because that had happened before. Um, like not, not for me, but from other business users ha- mm-hmm. having that access. I, I was really paranoid at the time. I was like, is this right? And he's like, and he's like you're fine. Just... <laughs> he was probably at this point just don't bother me and con- keep context switching me <laughs> it taught me the the cycles of go read the docs oh everything's just sql oh no i'm actually using hive sql that's this is completely different than yeah. this thing i'm reading from right so i need to understand the different nuances right and read like my manual and that's what kind of got a taste for that the writing started to show on the wall um, at Living Social, like, this probably isn't going to be the saying is probably the best move for my career. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time, Living Social had something called Hungry Academy, which is where they took people with no technical experience and turned them into developers over a six month period. I think the only boot camps at the time were Dev Boot Camp. Um, there might have been another one, but this is in 2000. 12, 13, this was pretty cutting edge. I applied for it, didn't get in. I was pretty bummed out. And I was like, am I cut out for this? Should I be programming? Mm-hmm. I was like, I gave myself a month just to kind of go find myself. I was like, no, I still want to do this. I didn't have a Mac at the time. So I had to go buy a Raspberry Pi, install Linux on it. I put my, attached my keyboard and set it up to my TV and started going through, I think, wow. why's the last guide? Then being a business person, I'm like, what is this thing? I don't understand this. And then someone <laughs> goes, oh, do the Hartle tutorial. That makes sense. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I get this. I'm building Twitter, cool. Eventually tell the IT people, oh, I need a Mac now. Don't you use a lot of Excel? No, no I, I need a Mac, it's important. So I get a Mac. Uh, and I'm able to like, start coding off that. Nice. Can we back up for just a second? Did you have a friend or something that suggested getting a Raspberry Pi in order to learn programming off of? Or how did that occur to you as a non-technical person as the right solution? So I, I started coding on my PC, trying to install Rails and Ruby and going through that nightmare. Okay. And I bought a Raspberry Pi because someone was like, oh, it's like a small computer. And... I love shiny objects. Like, okay, I'll do it. Then I just sat on my desk somewhere forever. Then I think I was reading maybe Lifehacker or something. It's like, turn your Raspberry Pi into an actual usable programming thing. I'm like, oh, I can do this. (laughs) Okay, follow these steps. 
take your SD card and put this here, then put this there. I'm like, that's awesome. And you were able to go through uh, the Hartle tutorial on the Raspberry Pi. You went through the entire thing. No, I did not. That, at that point in time, <laughs> I, I got. I think the furthest I got was I started doing another Sinatra tutorial. Gotcha. And I was able to get that up and running, but trying to pull down a bunch of gems onto a Raspberry Pi was not. Mm. It, it, the Raspberry Pi thing was not efficient at all. It, it was a fun experiment, but <laughs> it was not a thing. I was like, oh, this is. Yeah, this is how I want to program. Like, <laughs> gotcha. Very cool. Once you were able to procure a Mac, you started going through different tutorials and stuff. And then what? Yeah, uh, different tutorials. Then phoning ran up for Hungry Academy. And I was like, oh, oh no. Like, I thought I had a shot getting into the second one. They usually preferred internal candidates over external candidates from like a culture standpoint. Is that- so Hungry Academy was like a boot camp internal to living social, correct? Is mm-hmm. that? Okay. Gotcha. It was internal, but like external candidates could apply as well. Gotcha. With the idea that they would potentially be working at Living Social once they're done. Mm-hmm. Correct. I think there was like a contract of some sort of stay a couple years uh, for them. So they would have developers. So their funding dried up and then? Funding dried up across the board. So I was like, well, I still want to do this. Jeff Casimir says like, I'm going out to Denver. I'm starting a new school. And I was like, like okay, that's cool, I guess. You know. <laughs> and he was the one that was running Hungry Academy yeah, at the time. He, he right? was running Hungry Academy through Jumpstart Lab. Then he's like, okay. So then funding ran up. So he's like, hey, I'm starting this new school out in Denver. We're always looking for people. I was like, uh, I don't know. Like, am I good enough? Then someone uh, like from Living Social, obviously at this point in time, everyone who was still interested in going was going to move out to Denver and do it. And I think that first class maybe had one or two people from Living Social who was like, we're just moving to Denver to make this happen. <laughs> yeah, and w- which now has like, evolved into Turing. Um, like, it was... It was originally through Galvanize, which is called G School. It's a very complicated history that I always have to get into of the educational lineage where I come from. <laughs> so you were the first class of what would become touring. I was the second class. So <laughs> the first class comes off and like email Jeff. I'm like, I'm thinking about applying to either General Assembly or Flatiron. At this point in time, like, I don't think I'm good enough to get into this program. He's like, mm-hmm. no, apply now. Give me your stuff. I was like, I can't do it now because like kind of timelines, finances. I need to get my ducks in a row, sell this to my family that I'm going to quit my job, move out to another city that's like, like the furthest like, anyone in our family has ever lived from. So Living Social was headquartered in D.C. and your mm-hmm. family is out in the Virginia area somewhere, right? Yeah, we're, we're on the other edge of Virginia. So from Bristol, where I'm from, to D.C. is about six hours driving. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize Virginia was that big. It's essentially going diagonally across the longest way possible uh, <laughs> okay. is how you get from D.C. to Bristol. My sister lives in Cincinnati. That's six-ish hours away. We've both only have lived in those cities. Uh, mm-hmm. My like my parents, they run a restaurant, so like they don't really have like the option of flying, leaving work for two days is like kind of out of the question. Yeah, I have to go to Denver. Like if if I'm going to Denver, like something bad happens to me. Like don't know anyone there. Go ahead and put a deposit for the funeral plot because nobody's going to be able to come get you. I also need some money right. to go to the school that's not accredited. I, I know you've been wanting me to go to law school, but that's not happening. I, I need that <laughs> money to go to this school that I just started and to pay my tuition. Luckily enough, my my family was really supportive. Uh, my mother likes to hang it over my head because um, when I wanted to go into marketing and business. My mom's like, you should go into computers. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to go into computers. Computers are, are stupid. Like, only nerds use computers. <laughs> and then she's like, no, you should use computers. So like, she's like, actually, she's like writing the check. She's like, I told you you should have done computers. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know. I know. <laughs> awesome. You end up going out to uh, Colorado, and this is like a 18-week kind of thing? Or what's the time frame? It's, yeah, six months. So if, Oh. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's I got a six month lease um, at this apartment. Only thing I think I brought was a slow cooker, some spices. uh, (laughs) I bought like a mattress from Living Social and had it shipped to my apartment. 
that I slept on. No box, no frame, no box <laughs> frame, no, nothing. Just mattress on the ground, the sheets, <laughs> nice. a car table I ordered off Amazon. And like that was it for six months. And your rolly bag suitcase, you've got a slow cooker and spices and clothes. Basically. In clothes, yep. <laughs> so obviously that was a pretty good experience. You were able to, to come out and land a job after that. And that first job that you landed was remote, right? Mm-hmm. Was remote something that you were already aware of, kind of the dynamics of having been at Living Social? There was a fair amount of remote that was going on at that time at Living Social, right? Looking back on it, it's amazing how progressive Living Social was on remote. They made devs in office work remote, I believe, I'll say once a week, to understand and empathize for other people who were remote. And the teams were distributed in the sense of one team would be fully remote, like, and there'd be an in-house team, just for, like, an easier dynamic. And I was, like, getting at a lot of these principles that now kind of seem commonplace, but in 2011, 2012, like, oh, this is kind of weird and novel, but now it's, like, they're kind of considered best practices. Mm-hmm. You've been in a few different remote situations. What is your feeling on mixing on-site versus remote teams? Or do you feel like that was kind of a best practice, a, a good thing to do to make sure that you kind of let the remote people be remote and keep them within the context of a team and then have a context of an on-site team having their own kind of scope and domain to work on? Yeah, I think think it works, especially in my current position where my team's fully remote, is that the order of magnitude of communication kind of going up layers and across layers is the most important. So if everyone on my team's remote, it's easy because we have remote communication patterns. Mm-hmm. Chat is our primary usage. Then you know, video calls, things that we're very comfortable with. I think the trouble is, is when I've been on teams that are trying to do both, I think for people who've been remote on a non-fully remote team, have had the experience of being the only person on the TV, and I'm now a TV person, and everyone else is having these conversations, or someone's drawing on a whiteboard somewhere that's not in my purview, and, and that collaboration becomes difficult. But if I'm able to communicate with my team, we use our communication patterns, it's a little bit easier, at least for my day-to-day, to be able to work in that environment. Then moving on towards, if I have with the Duke cross team, right? Like that isn't as easy, but it's still the Pareto's law of my communication and my time um, has been dealt with um, at the team level. Gotcha. So going back, you've finished school, you've landed at the first gig, which is actually the same company that you're with now, right? You've just transitioned roles. The organization has made a fair n- number of transitions too, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm still at my first gig as a developer. I guess I've been in the role for about three and a half years now. I don't like moving around that a lot. It's one of those things that finding the right opportunities and things that speak to me, I find very valuable. I'm like, I don't ever want to like always believe like the grass is greener somewhere else. So mm. you know, I, I think everyone's kind of looking for that perfect job that like fulfills them and like. For me, it's like you see enough job applications out there, go on enough interviews, and like having this belief that there's a perfect job. There are a lot of jobs out there that I think I may be a good fit for, but believing that there is, if I had this kind of this uh, objectification or idealization of the job, is like, oh, if I had this, if I if I was at Google, you know, I'd be so much happier, or right. Facebook, or new startup, right? And it's mm-hmm. like knowing that, like, well. Maybe this, like, everything about my job isn't perfect, but I know at the end of the day that, like, so I work in the healthcare industry, and I know at the end of the day that if I execute properly, I can make people have better outcomes in their health. I was able to sit on an on-site interview with a customer, and she was talking about how her son has asthma, and she needed our product to be able to find the right doctors to go back and forth, right? And it's like, that was three years ago, and I still think about that when I do my job, I'm building this product for her and like, she needs me. That makes it worthwhile, even though, you know, maybe every day isn't the best, but Mm -hmm. the ability for me to make an impact in someone's life is tremendous. Yeah. That's awesome. When you can actually tie the software that you're working to real people and real problems, like really serious problems that they're dealing with. That can be super motivating. I'm wondering when you came out of I guess it was G school at the time, right? Mm-hmm. I came touring. Were you looking for something that was remote? How did you end up getting this gig? I would 
wouldn't say remote was on my mind. Um, there was a little bit of hesitation of, you know, should a junior developer have their first gig be, be remote? Mm-hmm. Just because difference between being a junior and a senior developer, there's a little bit of difference there. I was mainly looking at New York, San Francisco, back to D.C., possibly Atlanta, maybe Seattle. I know I didn't want to stay in Denver. Like New York and Atlanta were like my first two big options. Um, then this opportunity came along. You know, it's like it's 100% remote. Okay, I was like, let's try it. I think at face value, I don't know if I have done that, but having known the leadership on that team and them mm. coming in from Living Social and me being able to vet who they were through that network, and mm. then for them to be able to vet me, built a lot of trust early on. Yeah. That I could go into the situation and say, okay, I feel comfortable. This is not just some random person hiring another random person who's a junior developer to be on this team. There was a lot of early trust that was built. And one of the contacts had known Jeff, and Jeff had known him. So it was like there was this very highly threaded community I was going to be walking into, not just, hey, junior developer, here's a laptop for the mail. Good luck. (laughs) Yeah. Do you remember any major lessons learned from that period of time? Any kind of advice that you'd give a junior developer that's thinking about going remote or just starting remote? Anything that normal junior developer advice times 10, right? (laughs) Don't be afraid to ask questions. I feel like I was very uh, afraid at that point in time, my first career. I was fortunate enough to move on to the architecture team. Thinking that like I'm the smartest kid in my class is way different than being on a team of the smartest people I think I've ever worked with, <laughs> you know, day in and day out on a domain I don't understand, mm-hmm. um, and having that humility to say like I don't understand what's going on. I was taught how to build a, like monolith and rails and like possibly refactor. Now we're moving to microservices, and I feel way over and over my head. And like I think that's one of the things if I could go back and tell myself. Like, don't be afraid. Ask all the questions. <laughs> it's healthcare. It's hard. You're not. You're not. You're not a worse person for not understanding what's going on. That and like being vocal, making sure like you get heard, right? Mm-hmm. And taking time to like to read the code, understand it. Like, we're lucky enough we were pairing all the time, which is great from kind of understanding of the classroom. It's like okay. Uh, I'm watching this awesome senior developer. You know, I'm seeing his workflow and being able to like break it down, ask questions, getting inside his head of where he wants to go, what he's thinking about, and like adopting those patterns. Mm-hmm. And I think having being in a situation where I can pair is great, but also taking the next step of working towards redoing it myself. So, kind of how they say like reading creates comprehension, but to like to truly understand, it's kind of you have to do the recall, so like flashcards or things like that when it comes to learning. Mm-hmm. So having some other way to ingrain the lessons in my head, opposed to just working with my pair, which is a different context of learning than programming on my own. So what would that look like for you? Does that mean inside projects and various things you were trying to apply these lessons? Or what was your context for that kind of direct application if you weren't getting it through the pair programming process? I would say side projects of trying to recreate what I just saw. So mimic and like, okay, why do they do this? Okay, does this feel right for me? Like, And actually typing it out. So sometimes I could conceptually understand what's going on. But then making myself like retype it out was helpful. Just like certain patterns I kept seeing, doing it in my side projects, sometimes getting, hopefully getting projects that I didn't get a pair on to like say, okay, now that there's no more help immediately through pairing, what can I accomplish? Do I think I understand what's going on or do I understand what's going on? Um, and being right. able to do that. Right. Any other advice you give to a junior just starting out in remote? Coming out of a, like a boot camp, another thing that really got to me was going from not knowing how to program at all to being able to build a blog or a, a Twitter clone. Mm-hmm. That feels like a magic power. The, but then trying to figure out like the next subtle next step doesn't feel as rewarding in the sense of, oh no, I made this magical thing of, well, no, I know we're in this small little thing in Active Record or I can write a well structured class. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, the writing of Welsh Church Cloud, like, there isn't the, like, the mental high, like, the endorphins of 
having mm-hmm. that. And the rest of programming that I've, like, I've done after that, it feels like that. It's incremental improvements opposed to like being very in-depth, more of a, a breadth situation of, oh, this situation, I should probably think about this. Mm-hmm. Or in these other situations, the nuances of programming. So like, because you may, you may not be feeling like you're making a lot of progress, you are. Going from zero to one is a much different feeling than going from one to two to two to three to three to four. And that having a cumulative feeling for the rest of your career. Mm-hmm. The advice is just deal with it. Like it doesn't yeah. feel the same, but you're moving. Yeah, because then you'll have a conversation. Like I'll have a conversation with a friend, right? And I'll mention something. And to me, I was like, oh, that's just like something that I just kind of picked up along the way. And they'll be like, I never thought of it that way, or that like that's really interesting, or like what's that? So I work on a lot of Elasticsearch. Um, which is a search engine based on top of Wusin and uses um, basically through HTTP. And it's something I, I, I slowly learn incrementally. But then I go talk to my friend, like, he's never heard of it. He doesn't know what it is, right? And it's like, I'm kind of explaining to him. I was like, but to me, that was a gradual improvement and like a gradual learning process. It's like, oh, I actually know this thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know this thing. Oh, well, like, you know, people are coming up with me, coming to me with questions, and like, I can just rattle off answers. That slow build that I don't notice, but when I was in school, it was, I'm coding 18 hours a day. Anytime I'm not coding, I'm reading a technical guide, right? Mm-hmm. And that time I'm not doing is like, I'm sleeping. And going off the, the high intensity to just a slow burn, it was hard for me to feel like I was improving in my career mm-hmm. when I was, but I just wasn't going at a speed at that time like was not sustainable. Right? right. Yeah, that makes sense. How has the way you end up learning changed? One, as you become more senior, which I think you've hit on a little bit, but also as you've kind of changed into the data engineering focus, uh, you're obviously not doing as much pair programming or anything like that. What are the types of things that you're doing in order to improve your skills? Uh, I do a lot of reading. I always recommend if you're able to afford it getting a Safari books online subscription. I want to say it's $300 a month, but it gives access to every O'Reilly book, almost every Manning book, video courses. And like the common argument is, well, I only buy two or three books a year. And like that, the math doesn't work out. Kind of compared to Amazon Prime, where it's like, mm-hmm. once you have it, if I want to learn about graph databases or Elasticsearch or Hadoop, right, I can just... Go pick up a book. I practically don't finish any books, but being able to like dip my toes, figure out what's out there, I find tremendously helpful. I've been trying to work on a lot more side projects because books are great because they're very well constructed happy paths. They've been you know edited. They go through a very certain flow, but there's certain edge cases that just don't happen when you're working on stuff. And the more that I've been working on side projects, the more I find myself in GitHub issues. And I think that has become a new treasure trove of things I've learned, right? It's like, uh huh. And again, not on the projects that are like Rails or the bigger names, but like the medium sized ones where they're big, they're not as like rigorous of like people looking at them. So I think mm-hmm. one is, I was looking at it, is uh, Draft.js. So a rich text editor developed by Facebook. Yeah, and the, the the equivalent draft plugins, which is the the plugin library for DraftJS. I was looking like, is there functionality for what I want to do? No, it doesn't exist. Reading through the issues of why do I get this error? Because it's it's semi niche in the sense of like there's no books on this, or it, it's only right. been out a year and a half. So if someone is writing a book, like it's, it hasn't been published yet. <laughs> okay, why is this broken? Okay, well let's get into it and. It's fun because instead of being a passive participant in technology, I then feel like an active participant of I am now at the cutting edge of the research going on uh, or the development of this project. A braver man than me would contribute and put a PR in. And I was like, well, I'm just looking for has someone already solved this yet? And can I just copy and paste whatever they how this got fixed? Right. 
I was wondering, your side projects, have they changed in nature since you've moved from full stack development day to day to data engineering? You're talking about Draft.js, something client side that you're not going to be dealing with at your day job. Do you end up needing to do everything on a side project, obviously, in order to support some kind of interesting data engineering problem that you want to work with? Or are they kind of different worlds for you? Different worlds. Uh, I would say that I usually go in a project with an idea. And sometimes that idea isn't data focused. Or if it is, I will just go down that data path. So I was scraping data of a certain source. And I was really trying to figure out the goal of like, how do I do this all like in Python in like in the very most like Python way? Because you know, coming from a Ruby background, the difference between Ruby and Python are not like are not super different, but right. there are some things that are a little bit different. So I was like, okay, I want, I want to do this all in Python, get it in. Another project I was working on was like, let's just try to do this in AWS. Can I use Lambda and CloudWatch to like pull down data, modify it, and throw it in a bucket? Mm-hmm. So stuff like that. I don't think I have... I still want to stay sharp on full stack because I'm more mission driven when it comes to new opportunities. I like data engineering now, but I wouldn't say that like I want to fully give up full stack just because data engineering is usually for larger companies and because it's a specialization, larger companies can afford specialization mm-hmm. um, opposed to smaller companies, right? So a company of 10 people doesn't really have the bandwidth to dedicate resources to a data engineer. But right. a full-stack developer could be able to like do data, like large chunks of the data part as part of their day-to-day workflow. Yeah. So like, I like to stay sharp across the board and just make projects that interest me. Because if they don't interest me, or if I'm doing them for the wrong reason, oh, wow, this would be a great portfolio project. It will show I could do all this cool stuff. Anytime I go in my mindset of doing that <laughs> as a side project, I drop it in two weeks because like, I fundamentally <laughs> don't care about it. <laughs> you talked a little bit at the beginning about different tools that you use. Do you have any uh, suggestions around remote tooling, things that you've currently used that are helpful for you as a remote employee or things that you've used and aren't helpful? What do you like, don't like as far as remote tooling? I would say that getting a good video chatting software, I'm pretty agnostic. I actually, I, I, I do prefer Hangouts over Skype. Someone can, you know, you know, can find me for it. <laughs> um, but I like the idea of a room opposed to a call, mm-hmm. especially parts of my career of we would have like we'd have our own slugs and our URLs for like our rooms. Right. And like right. it really helps carry over the the mental model of physical space. Yeah, all hangouts are the same, but like this is our hangout. And <laughs> even though it's like maybe if, like it's teddy bear one, two, three, four. <laughs> right. Like. That meaning, like the relationship between being in room Teddy Bear one two three four, is very. I've had experiences in that room, right? Like <laughs> that's why I learned this. Or, like, but like Skype is like, oh, Skype's like a, a call. It's ephemeral. Like once it's over, it's it's just kind of gone. But being able right. to revisit like a, a virtual place is it really just kind of. I think it triggers off the visual spatial learning part of my brain. <laughs> Interesting. It would be cool if different hangout rooms had character to them, like specific character other than just the slug, like there's graffiti on the wall that you can see a little bit or or something like that. That's why I get angry that like chat wasn't permanent. And other tools I use, oh, yeah. having like permanent chat is like, oh, yeah, that did happen. Like it creates history and like it reminds me of things are happening here. Mm-hmm. Cool. Anything else besides video chat? I would say my Garmin Forerunner that shames me into keep moving around my house. It's not a part of my exact workflow, but knowing how many steps I've taken today, it's like, okay, I should probably like move around a bit or like kind of walk around or go outside. Mm-hmm. And cool. Yeah, I, I would say I'm like the hardware, like like having a Yeti microphone. I think that's really important to me is just having good gear between slack teams hip chat 
Discord, the 80-20 rule is like, yeah, is Slack better? Yes. Do all these other tools do marginally the same thing? But I just wish I had Slack because it's prettier. It doesn't make much of a difference day to day because it basically does the same thing. But also I might be on the other side of the paradigm of because I don't use it actively, like I'm not seeing the value. So Mm -hmm. that's another thing I'm, I'm trying to be conscious of. Do you have any strategies or thoughts around just how all-encompassing chat can be uh, within a large organization? There's probably lots and lots of channels that you could be watching. I'm curious what your kind of notification setup is, uh, how much you are paying attention to it, if you have any set times for jumping up and taking a look at what's going on, or how closely do you watch the chat? This has become the hardest challenge of data engineering, I found, because I support so many teams. It's not just being on one team, watching one chat, and like getting one at all. It's being in four different chats, then getting four different at-alls for things that aren't even plus and me, and it's 80% of the stuff is not relevant to me. Try and manage that signal to noise. A lot of this skimming is like, am I seeing keywords that like, is it data, is it search? It's someone mentioning like one of my teammates. It's just trying to scan here and there, being on top of my own stuff to be aware of what could possibly be happening. So like I usually try to perk up anytime I hear, oh, X, Y, and Z is down. Like that does touch the data. Like, it may not be a data issue, but like I need to be on top of that, run my tests over and over again. Not that I don't want to say, oh, it's not data's problem, but it's more of understanding at my level, okay, is everything still fundamentally good here? And if not, like, how can I tackle it? Mm -hmm. What kind of opportunities do you think you've taken advantage of being remote? In what ways has location independence presented opportunities to you? How is your, your life different for being able to work remotely? Being a data engineer, the workflow is a bit different than a full stack developer. And I think that plays into being remote quite well. I sometimes have ETLs that could take up to three hours. Mm, mm-hmm. So opposed to being a, a full stack developer where I write test, I code, commit, write test, commit, right? And I'm getting that endorphin rush. If I get into the office at nine, I could probably, obviously never being an develop, actual developer um, in an office, but like just doing normal office work, I could probably quit whenever I want, commit, push it up to a branch, walk away for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, testing ETLs, it takes three hours. I have the flexibility to, if I know I need to like figure this pipeline out, I can wake up at seven, I can get one rep in, see if it, everything works end to end, kind of go then go through my ritual, check back in at 10, okay, maybe that didn't work, put it back through, right, then one, right, then keep going like i have more cycles at that point in time right I'm like i'm happy to do this till you know 10 30 because you know in between some of the like the, the later sessions right like i can go eat dinner i can spend time with my wife but because like i have like the flexibility of being at home i can get all those reps in post if i was in office where it'd be like well okay maybe i, I have to stay later and i don't get as much done because uh, i can have as much assurance Has that been more difficult for separating work life? Is that ever an issue with you or the people that you love around you where you need to figure out where the line is? I would say I'm lucky enough where that hasn't been the case. The the older I get, I see that becoming more and more so of trying to create a good work-life balance. And I'd say that in the sense of coming from a a startup, being single, working at a startup, got into the bad habits of, well, I'll just work till eight. Then I'll hit the bars up for happy hour. Having that unsustainable lifestyle and now kind of slowly creeping into this, well, it's okay, right? Because the actual work to set up the new ETL and investigate is maybe a 20 to 30 minute exercise. Then to re-kick it off, make, like, watch it for a little bit. So I think for now, but the more that, like, the life part of the work-life balance becomes more demanding, mm-hmm. um, that's something I'll be more willing to push back on. But also, data comes with its own certain challenges of swapping out databases, doing stuff to pride late at night that we don't want to affect. If something goes wrong, we don't want to affect customer Usability. Right. If I accidentally destroy production database, that's not an issue I want to have during peak hours. Right. 
being able to restore. So it's that's the trade-off. Going at nine, like if I had to run a script that like switches our old database to our new database, I don't think that really affects my work-life balance that much. Mm-hmm. Do you get much feedback from other data engineers as far as the expectations on this? It sounds like there's not necessarily like, all right, you've got to kick off X number of ETL processes today. Or do you just kind of look to uh, your other coworkers to say, okay, the nature of our work means that there's going to be a mix of work-life balance, maybe kind of throughout the day. Like you said, seven o'clock, you get up, you kick something off. You're off having breakfast, doing whatever, hanging out with your wife until like 10 when it ends up finishing. Are there signals that you get that help you know, like what is normal? What is kind of the expected way of working? I would say if I am getting signals, they're probably pointing me in the opposite direction. There's always a common notion of no all-nighters for like if production goes down, I think that calls for an to get that resolved until it's resolved. But like for just normal processes, it's probably more of an expectation of like, don't pull all nighters, don't burn like the, the candle from both ends. I think for me, it's my own workflow is that like, I want to get stuff done. And because like, I don't find it taxing, I'm okay with it. I don't think there's ever an expectation from anyone above me or side me like saying, oh, you need to get this done. It's more of my own, like, I want to see this through and it makes me more productive to be able to get more reps in and figure it out opposed to if I limited myself day to day. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about living in the D.C. area, a little bit about the tech scene, what your involvement in that might be and what has drawn you there and what keeps you there? I would say that really enjoy pieces of D.C.'s tech scene. Being in D.C., there's a lot of opportunity to do social good. And there's the normal JS meetups, Ruby meetups, Elixir meetups. And there's two different versions for every meetup. So there's always one that's in D.C. proper and one that's for Northern Virginia. Each of those communities have their own nuances and meeting schedules. There's always, in the summer, either a couple of hackathons going on. So I was able to attend a hackathon at the Washington Post of how to rethink about journalism, which was amazing. Met a lot of great people there. I was able to do another hackathon for like, how can we best invent products that help integrate people who have been incarcerated? What do they need? How can we like re-acclimate them back living like a normal lifestyle? Then I was also able to attend Ruby for Good, which is out in, on George Mason University. We stay on campus and like we just code for like a nonprofit. I was able to build a database scraper for the US Vote Foundation. They had outsourced their website and they somehow didn't weren't able to have like database access. So I had to build a scraper to give them access to the data so then they could build an API for it. Yeah, and like I think those kind of opportunities. I try to make it to code for DC. I get to work on projects that have a civic purpose. One thing I was able to work on, a Arduino that once you ride a bike over it, like it was tied to a pneumatic tube, and like we would be able to put a pressure sensor over it to see to make it a cheap bike counter. Super cool. Can you go into a little bit of detail? You said that a lot of these meetups will have different versions, one for DC proper, one for Northern Virginia. Why the split in communities? Is there another large concentration of developers outside of DC in a particular city? What's going on there? There's a lot of people who live in the suburbs and in Arlington. So in DC geography, the Potomac splits up Arlington and the Virginia suburbs to the west. And on the east of the Potomac, it's uh, DC the city. And I think just from a travel standpoint, there's just enough people on both sides to warrant their own community. There's a couple of big Ruby shops in DC proper. Then there's a couple in Northern Virginia. They both have their own internal communities that are parts of those hubs within both areas. Then there's one Maryland meetup. I think that's the only one. Do you have any thoughts on what you think the future of remote work might be as we're looking at what kinds of changes in technology or tooling or organizational dynamics do you see kind of at play that are going to change the way we work often to the next 10, 20, 
30 years. Think about from an economic standpoint, limiting the potential talent pool to whatever is in a convenient distance of where the, ever the founder lived when creating that company is like when you say that way it's like it just sounds absurd that like why are we not finding the best talent and like having businesses that are also like already in multiple cities there's an executive at our company is like we're in boston another team's in denver and some people are working from home was like everyone is remote to someone else in this organization if you take that to its logical conclusion why can't everyone just be remote and have access to the entire workforce of which someone can hire from it doesn't make any sense and it always drives me crazy when i hear the counter argument of oh like we want those open office water core moments like where people just like you know serendipitously innovate and that literally translates to i'm betting my company's future on chance oh yeah people will just hang out together and it'll just work (laughs) <laughs> like if, if you said that in any management class, it sounds like a crazy person, right? Like remote work I've seen has given management and its employees the ability to like handcraft how they want their organization because everything in remote work has to be intentional. If something doesn't get set, they, there is no because there isn't that water core moment. It's like everything is we have to have ceremonies to, like to communicate this or be vigilant, right? And it does take more work. Because the things that people have taken for granted aren't there, but because that they have to be thought about, they're then thought about and questioned and like iterated on, opposed to saying, well, we're in the same room, like you're next to me, I thought you have just heard it. Like that's, <laughs> those don't seem like great communication patterns without intention, right? And mm-hmm. having a system that says we have intention, we need to constantly be thinking about our communication, it's the better practice. Right. So you just expect organizations that are distributed or are just going to be more successful over time and therefore eat up more and more of the market share of jobs that exist. Exactly. Right. It's like, I don't know like what the timeline of that is, but with like, internet being more ubiquitous across the country, the proliferation of the internet, of how it teaches people to program, I don't know like, what forces would push it back. Besides just the belief that being co-located is better. And I will say that there are certain ex- uh, there are certain exceptions that people need to be co-located. Mm-hmm. I have a friend, he is the head of tech at a fast casual restaurant, right? Mm. The fast casual restaurant is only in certain markets. He needs someone like in the market, eat the food. If you wanted to work at Chipotle... <laughs> but you didn't live in a city that didn't have a Chipotle, like, right. that that becomes an issue of, well, yeah, I'm making this thing that I don't really get. There are reasons why that happens, but for we consider like general tech or e-commerce or yeah. software as a service, there's no reason any of those roles shouldn't be, unless the product or the domain itself requires co-location. Yeah. Cool. Anything else about the future of remote work? The more people do it and the more normalized it becomes, the less of a crazy idea it is. We've now gotten to this like backlash of Yahoo and IBM have like said they're going to be cutting back remote work, right? And it's like the pendulum seems like it's swinging the other way, but it's hard for me to see like where are the underlyings there. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like sometimes remote workers can be a, a tool in a negative way for management to be able to make decisions to say, we need to create a little bit of attrition here in order to hit our budgets. Can we change a remote work policy in order to get us there without actually having to let people go or pay severance packages or stuff like that? And maybe that's just me being a little bit too cynical around some of the moves that you're talking about, but it seems like it is a lever that exists for management, right? So the output of what pulling that lever does is going to change based on the context for each company. So yeah, it's troubling and frustrating sometimes as a remote employee when it does get politicized within an organization and when it's hard to know the organization's commitment to it, right? Exactly. Remote work is not a bargaining chip to me in a cop package, right? Because if it's a bargaining chip, it is then something that can be given or taken and is, has 
value and status compared to other employees. Remote work is a organizational commitment to having the right communication patterns, understanding people's boundaries since like they're either working from home or you know maybe we'll be in a different time zone. Having that a philosophy that's bought in opposed to just oh you seem like a good candidate but you live in Albuquerque. Do you want to work remote? I don't know if that's the right path for remote work. Some people get a remote because they're inherently better than other people. Then like it becomes a thing that gets fought over for because it has values. Like person A gets remote work. Why do I get remote work? Right? Because the carrot needs to be dangled a little bit further away for you. Yeah, right. It's like no no, because management needs to be bought into remote work, a way to get talent all across the country, not just it's not a carrot. It is a value an organization has. It changes the entire organization, right? It's communication patterns, who is involved inside of the organization. To treat it as if it were a perk is to create a situation that is probably not going to be the most healthy remote environment that you can have or the most healthy organizational environment. Exactly. I just got a talk accepted to keep it real weird on remote work. Awesome. Yeah. I'm comparing my time playing tabletop RPGs online to remote work. It's very similar. Can you give us a little bit of highlights on what sorts of things you found related between those? Essentially playing a game like Dungeons and Dragons online is being in a four hour meeting for fun (laughs) with people in different time zones. I play with a woman. She lives in Australia. We play Sunday nights. She plays Monday morning. Um, (laughs) She needs more time to like get ramped up in the morning. Like, I'm like, yeah, it's playing 8 o'clock in the morning. But that's also like, I'm on the East Coast, so if we wrap around 9, right, someone in Dallas, you're like, yeah, maybe you could go longer. Like, the player in L.A., and they're cognizant of, like, oh, no, it's, it's 9 my time. I, I have to, you know, get ready to go to bed. Like, do my nightly ritual. Yeah, so it's not just your work life that has become distributed. It's uh, extracurricular stuff, too. That's really cool. All my friends are online. <laughs> Well, awesome. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. Lots of really good insight. Great to dig into what's going on in the DC tech scene to learn a little bit about your history, how you got to where you are and what kind of patterns have helped you be successful in learning and in the day to day. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. Definitely.